just want to um, just set your, uh, your minds kind of in focus, right? Because I think in the midst of the struggles of our, our day-to-day life, we lose sight of the big picture. And so imagine for me, um, it's, imagine for me, there's, it's about 50, 60, 70 years ago now, I believe it was the 50s, early 60s, and there's a young, a young boy of Middle Eastern descent, and he's walking around in the desert in the wilderness, and he's throwing rocks, and there's these holes in these caves up in the rocks, and he, he begins to throw rocks in those because that's what little boys do, right? They throw rocks. We were at the lake the other day. That's what my kid was doing, throwing rocks. And all of a sudden, he throws a rock up into this cave and hears a shattering sound. And that's interesting. And so he goes up and he crawls into the cave and discovers all these clay jars filled with scrolls and fragments of scrolls. Those are known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's amazing. Um, We've discovered these, you know, not that long ago in history, but as we've dug into the Dead Sea Scrolls, we've learned all these fascinating things. We've seen the accuracy of Scripture displayed in incredible ways. The book of Daniel all these things that scholars have tried to argue, no, that was changed. No, actually, as we, as we go back and we, we find these scrolls now that, that date back, you know, before a lot of these periods and, and these times, and it's like, wow, the accuracy of Scripture. And we've learned so many interesting new things that shed light on some things in Scripture. One of the groups that we really learn about, a lot about in the Dead Sea Scrolls and also through the writings of Josephus and um, some other ancient historians are a group called the Essenes. And the Essenes, um, they're just, just like modern Christians. There's also, they had like different factions and denominations and things. And some of them were kind of crazy and weird and believed some, some crazy stuff, right? But some of them were very faithful and true to the one true God, Yahweh. And what they discovered in some of these ancient scroll fragments was they believed the Essenes had their own calendar and they believed that the world could be broken down into four ages. Basically, Three eras of 2,000 years followed by a 1,000-year Sabbath age. Interesting. And they discovered this, and they discovered these intriguing prophecies that actually seemed to prophesy the coming of a Messiah who would come and atone for the sins of the world within the specific 50-year period that Jesus came in. Isn't that fascinating? Now, what's also interesting, and you can look this up if, if you want to, is, is many scholars believe John the Baptist, one of the most famous guys in history, we'll see, we're going to learn from him in just a second. Many people believe John the Baptist was actually one of, um, part of the Essenes. And it makes a lot of sense in, in a lot of ways. We can't prove it. But many believe he was. And also scholars believe, because the, the Essenes, many of them just sort of drop off the face of, of history. And many believe that the Essenes, because of this understanding of, of the timing and this prophecy of the timing around when the Messiah would come, many believe many of them followed Jesus, embraced Jesus, and were part of the early Christian church and the spread of the gospel. Many of our church fathers looked at some of these teachings and also shared a similar kind of of view of of the world. If you go back and read it, and of time and of history and the way that it was rolling out. This is called historic premillennialism, as you go look. And it's interesting to study all this stuff. And so as we come to the book of John, what I want to remind you of here is that John drops us into this epic, epic story, an epic account. It's the greatest story ever told because it's true. And he's going to lay out this epic account of Jesus, of life. He tells us 
um, why he wrote this. He says, Jesus performed many other signs. So we're going to see this theme of signs over and over, signs that Jesus would give of who he was. So he performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. Why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. These, these are the signs. Jesus said this. He says, the thief came only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so, so John, right, as he closes out this epic account, he says, here's why. I wrote this so that you would believe and find life. And not just life someday in, in the by and by, but life that begins now, life in abundance, the life of the Holy Spirit in your life, the life of following Jesus, life eternal. That's the purpose. That's John's motivation in writing this. Now, this isn't the only account that John gives us in the Scriptures. He gives us three letters as well. John was one of the disciples that was closest to Jesus, one of the inner three. He was really a friend of God, a friend of our Savior. He called himself the one that Jesus loves. Why did he call himself that? I think it was because he had an overwhelming sense of, of how much he'd been forgiven. Because remember, he, James and John, they were called the sons of thunder. They wanted to call down fire on a Samaritan village just for dissing them. But by the end of his life, we see him changed radically, and he becomes known as the apostle of love. So he gives us these three incredible letters, and then he gives us the final book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. As it is revealed to him, the coming of Jesus the, the destination. So Jesus landing at this point, the center point of history, and then John is also going to reveal to us the end point, the point when Jesus will come again. And the last, in the last couple of verses, you, you find this longing expressed. Here's what it says. It's not on the screen, but just listen. It says this, Talking about Jesus, it says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And, and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. See, John begins his account, this epic account talking about life, why he's written so that you can experience life. And he ends it with this longing for when we will really experience what life was meant to be lived, like when Jesus comes back. But he says, you can reach out for that and you can take it. Life. It's a free gift and it's offered for you. And so that's what I hope and that's my prayer that we discover that as we go through this scripture. Now, I want to recap real quick. If you're with us in April, and I know we have lots of new people, so if you are new around here and you missed the series in April, we dove into the first three or first 18 verses of the book of John. It's called the prologue. Anybody remember the Star Wars crawl where you have, you know, far, far in a galaxy far away and the cool music comes on? Dun, 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 right? Wait a minute. Is that Indiana Jones or Star Wars? I can't remember. But you, you know, right? And the music is rolling, and the, and the credits are, are rolling. Um, not the credits, the, uh, the opening thing, right? And why is that happening? 
It's to set this story because John's about ready to zoom into Jesus' life when he walks the planet and give us his words and the signs he gives and the actions that he does and allow us to fall in love with our Savior. But that it doesn't start there. It, this is a moment in the context of the bigger story, which is why in the first 18 verses he sets this up. And I just want to highlight a couple of those really quick. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Isn't that powerful? This, this 18 verses is, is some of the most profound, theologically rich material in, the, in, the, in all of the scriptures. That's why we took three weeks and just did a deep dive. And if you missed it, go back to our YouTube channel, go back to our podcast and catch up on that. I encourage you to do that because it's powerful. Because what, what John is doing is he's setting up this story. What, what does he do in the beginning was the word, and he used this, this, this word, the logos, which the Greeks understood as this idea of, of the thing, uh, the logic or the reason that held the universe together, and they speculated on what could this be. And John says, I'll tell you what it is. It's not abstract. It's not the universe. It's not some vain philosophy. It's a person, and I'm going to tell you exactly who his name is. His name is Jesus. And John sets up the fact that, that we all look for life in so many different places in this life. And he says, if you want to know the true source of life and light, there's one that shines in the darkness and as dark as things will be. And believe me, John saw some dark times, just as Christians throughout history have. And to, to this day, the light of Jesus shines and nothing can extinguish that light. It's part of the epic story, right? Verse, verse 11 says this. He came to, his, to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So the big story is you have the ability to be a child of God through trust and belief and faith in Jesus. Life, that's where life is found. That's what the story is all about, the big story of history. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The heart of the Father is grace and truth, full of grace and truth. Not like partially grace, partially truth, full of grace and truth. It's the heart of Jesus. And then he goes on at the very end. He says this, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. Did you catch that? Has made us, or has made him known. Who himself is God. See, what John's going to do right at the very beginning of this prologue is he's going to set up this powerful theme that Jesus, of the deity of Christ, of the, the doctrine of the Trinity, and in those three weeks, we looked at that. That wasn't a foreign concept in, in Hebraic culture. In fact, it wasn't until about 200 A.D. when Christianity started to explode all over the world that rabbinic Judaism took that out of their teaching. The concept of the Trinity, Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. John begins to set that all up right here. And he sets up this epic account. And he also introduces us to someone else, another John. John the Baptist, one of the most famous guys in history. Jesus said of this guy, he's the greatest man who ever lived up till that time in history. 
Might be worth looking at his life, huh? Um, when, when his birth was prophesied, you can go back and read about it. We normally do around Christmas time because it's in, in Luke uh, chapter 1. You know, the angel appears to his father, Zechariah, who's an, an older man, and his wife is, is older, and they're barren, and they can't have kids, right? And uh, says, you're going to have a kid. And he didn't. He's like, really? Uh, what's the sign? <laughs> really? And so he couldn't speak until the child was born. And then right after, he writes the name down because the angel told him, name him John. He's going to be a great prophet. Right after that. He writes the name John because they're like, no, no, name him Zechariah. He's like motioning. Give me something to write with. John. And then all of a sudden he could speak. And he tells the whole story, I'm sure. And it's this amazing account. So John the Baptist. Now John grows up. And, and like I said, many scholars think he may have been part of the Essene community, this, this very um, faithful, intense group that pursued God. He, was, he took the vow of a Nazarite. He lived out in the desert. I mean, this guy was kind of like crazy prophet guy. Um, not crazy, but just like wild-eyed prophet, right? He wore a camel skin. He, he, he lived in the desert. He ate locusts and honey. Anybody want to sign up? He grew, history, uh, we think he probably had like long dreads. It's very likely. He didn't cut his hair, probably. It's part of the Nazarite thing. So he's this like prophet figure. And all of a sudden, he drops into history, into a period of history, and begins to announce the coming of the Messiah and telling people to get their lives straight to prepare for him. And we're going to drop in to the text in verse 19. It says this, Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. So the, the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders and sort of governmental structure of Israel that was under the thumb of Rome, the empire of Rome, they heard all these rumors like there's this prophet guy out in the desert. Go check him out. See if it's the Messiah. Because they had prophecies that prophesied around this very time, like it just said the Essenes. But then also the prophet Daniel, had. there were prophecies that prophesied the coming of the Messiah. And there were many people and scholars of the day that believed the time was imminent, that any minute, so there was a great expectation. And so they sent these um, priests and Levites up, these religious people up, to check out John to see, is he the Messiah? Who is this crazy guy out in the desert dunking people under the water? And we'll talk about that a little bit more later because it's so significant. And if you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized as an identification with Jesus. It's something he's called you to do. And so they come up, they ask him, and he's like, no, 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 I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. Verse 21, they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So why did they ask him that? Well, the very last verse, in the very last two or three verses of the Old Testament, here's, here's what God says. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So they were expecting, and then it's like the book closed. Hebrew scriptures closed. And 400 years go by. And although God was certainly not silent to his people um, on a day-to-day -day basis, there was no scripture written during that time. There was um, no prophet of note during that time. We call those in theology the, years, the silent years. God was still moving, but sometimes it was hard to see him. They wondered where he is. They wondered, God, are, are, are you... You know, what, what's going on here, right? And then one day, John pops up. And so they were wondering, are you, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? He says, no, 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 I'm not Elijah. Now, actually, he says, I'm not Elijah. You remember Elijah got taken up to heaven um, without dying? So John says, no, I know who my mom and dad are. I was born. I'm not Elijah. Many, some Bible scholars believe Elijah actually will come back in the last days as a prophet. But Jesus said about him, 
Number one, in Luke, the angel said he will, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Jesus said, if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. But they ask him, and he's like, not Elijah. Are you the prophet? Who is the prophet? Well, all the way back in Deuteronomy, Moses prophesied as he's finishing up his, his 40 years of leading the people through the promised land. He knows, hey, we've given you the law of God that God gave to me. I've given it to you. I've counseled you to do this. You're not going to do a very good job at following this. You're going to be hauled off into exile. But God is going to send another prophet. Actually, we hear who that prophet is. He's identified in the book of Acts. When Jesus is, is preaching, or sorry, Peter is preaching one of his most powerful sermons, he says this, but now, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed to you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his prophets. Now listen, for Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who doesn't listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. So Jesus actually, or uh, Peter, he's, he points out who is the prophet. That's Jesus. So, so John the Baptist says, no, I'm not the prophet either. And I just want to point out, if Jesus says John the Baptist is the greatest man who ever lived, a note about him, that one of the things that made John the Baptist great is he knew who he was not. And he was not pretending to be someone that he was not. And I think it is so easy for us in our modern age and social media and when we're always looking at other people and comparing ourselves to try to be someone that we're not. Such a temptation. And one of the attributes of John is, I know who I'm not. Those are all top-notch people. But I know who I'm not. And so verse 22, finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who send us. What do you say about ourselves? They're like, okay, you're not all three of those. Those are the, three, the big three. Well, who are you? And this is what he says. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. I'm the voice calling. Here, here's what I am. You want to know what I am? I'm just a voice. I'm a voice. And my job is to be a voice calling out a voice that points to someone else, a voice that says, make straight the way of the Lord. And see, an attribute of, of, of greatness is he knew exactly why God had placed him on this planet. Now, can you imagine the years at this point? John is, um, you know, in his uh, early 30s, we believe. He's just a little bit older th than Jesus. And as he shows up on the scene all that time preparing, living out in the desert, eating locusts again, mm, some more honey, mm, honey's good. Growing his dreads, picking things out of his dreads, right? Just waiting. Just waiting. And then one day the word of the Lord comes to him, and he's called. And he's called to action. And he's called to speak. And he has a laser focus on his why. There's a great book called um, Simon Sinek, Your Why, or Get to the Why, or something like that. Find your why. I can't remember. But it has why in it. And it's a very important concept because so many people don't get the why of what God has placed you here to accomplish. 
Your why is rooted in something else. Your why is rooted in looking um, to this life and to comfort and to success and all of those things. It is so easy for that to become your why. And guess what? That why leaves you empty every time. Because you were not created to live for yourself. We say frequently life is for you, but not about you. And it's so easy for our why to to become just living for my comfort and pleasure and my success and my security. And let me just tell you, if that's you and, and that's the place you find yourself in, and it's so easy for our hearts to go there, you have no peace. You have no contentment. You are constantly frustrated because life seems to thwart that. And you're filled with tension in your heart. John has a laser focus on who he is and who he is not. He has an incredible humility. In fact, later we'll see as Jesus, um, as he identifies Jesus, and they begin, his disciples begin following Jesus and peeling off, and some are like, hey, Jesus is becoming more famous than you. Look, your disciples are going after him. Aren't you worried? Like, get your act together, man. Come on, refocus. Get a new strategy. Pivot. All that good business terms, right? And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. He must increase. I must decrease. I understand my why. This thing isn't about me. It's about him. John got that. John knew that. He says, I'm a voice of one calling out in the wilderness. And this is a, he, he quotes the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 43. It says this, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. This is the prophecy. John says, this is my why. Mountains, every valley raised up, mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. Now, what is he speaking about? Well, I don't think he showed up like on a big cat bulldozer. So he's speaking right here figuratively as it says, making straight the way for the Lord. He's speaking in deeper terms of human hearts. In fact, there's a Bible scholar who I often disagree with, but I thought this, what he wrote was actually um, very amazing on this, very deep. It says this. This is John MacArthur. He says, the low places are the base things in life that need to be brought up. The base things that need to be brought up. The high things are the elevated, self-righteous, prideful, hypocritical things that need to be brought low. The crooked things, the deviant things that need to be straightened out. The clutter of life needs to be cleared off so that the road is clean. This is all a part of the message of repentance. Deal with the issues of the heart. I thought that was very profound. And this is John the Baptist's mission. Is is to set and prepare a straight path to prepare hearts that are ready, that have turned from sin and are ready to embrace their Messiah. That those self-righteous, prideful, hypocritical things, to bring those down, bring them low. The crooked, the deviant things in life to say they need to be straightened out. Repent, right? This is all part of the message of repentance. Clutter of life. How many of you have some clutter in your life? things that distract you from focusing on him and his kingdom and and his why of living for him. Issues of the heart. And that's what John came to deal with. That's what John came to prepare the way. He came to announce the coming of the Messiah and to prepare the way in the hearts of his people to embrace him. It says, now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And he said, I baptize with water, John replied, but but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I 
am not worthy to untie. See, Jewish rabbis could make their disciples do a lot of uh, menial chores and things. Uh, some of you are like, to get this, it's like you make your kids take out the trash, right? Load the dishwasher. These are the conversations we have. Take out the trash. There'll be jobs. My kid's like, hey, uh, are you going to pay me for that? And I'm like, no, you live here. Do it, right? Some of you are having those conversations right now. Some of you, your kids are little. Are you going to have those soon? There's jobs you get paid for, and then there's jobs that you just do because you're, you're part of the family. But the, So rabbis could make their disciples do all sorts of things, but no one could bend down and make someone bend down and untie their sandal. It was too degrading, too menial. And, and in this culture, and John says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. Humility. Humility is an attribute of greatness. It says, this all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. And then the next day, and we're going to dig into this as we go a little further because this is such a theme in the book of John. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This (laughs) is such a powerful recognition of who Jesus is. And it's all leading up to this. As John is waiting in the desert, as he's waiting for him to see his purpose, um, and all of a sudden the word of God comes to him and says, now's the time. And then as he baptizes Jesus before this, and he recognizes the Holy Spirit descending on a dove, like a dove in the form of a dove, um, and remaining on Jesus. And he recognizes him. And now, after Jesus comes back from being tempted for 40 days in the wilderness, and he's coming by, John sees him. And this is what John is here for. And so he's going to point everyone's attention towards Jesus and say, look, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And the Apostle John, who I think has a depth of understanding for those few words, like so few who ever lived did, he records the words of John. And it won't be the only time the Apostle John records these words, look, and points to Jesus. In fact, this is the way the revelation starts. Look. Revelation 1-7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth were mourned because of him. So shall it be. Amen. And see, what I wanted to do as we launch this book today is to give you some sense before we get down into the individual miracles and all the things that Jesus says and his words that are so um, life-giving and rich and and the words of life, before we get into the the nitty-gritty of the, the details, I wanted to give you a picture, the big picture. He begins with creation. In the beginning was the Word who created all things. The Word was with God. The Word is was God, right? And then the Apostle John, at the end of his ministry, will re- write these incredible look words. Look, he's coming. He's coming in the clouds. And John, as he writes these words, was going through um, the world under Rome, the Christian world, those that followed Jesus earlier. They were going through incredible persecution during this time. Under Nero, under Domitian, Incredible persecution. Like still today, so many of our brothers and sisters around the world are. And so he wanted to set our hearts and minds on the bigger picture. That Jesus came. Like out, 
even though they knew when to look for him, why didn't they see him? Even though John said, look, the Lamb of God, so many, his own, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. So many who should have known, who should have been watching for him. And many were, and many embraced him. But so many didn't. And see, I think John would speak to our hearts, look, behold, he comes with the clouds. Because I think it's so easy for us in our day-to-day life to, look, to lose sight of the fact that he is coming again. Because life just gets busy. Life gets distracting. Life, we think life is all about here and now. And John the Baptist, I think, would tell us, hey, make way those, your heart. Prepare. Deal with your heart. Because your heart has separated from wanting to serve God primarily to wanting to serve God this age. Your heart has shifted to comfort being the primary motivator, to success being the primary motivator, to here and now being the primary motivator. And John would like to remind us, I think, if you set all that he writes together, Hebrews says this, Hebrews 10, 23, it says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And let me just tell you, as you go through the New Testament, you can't miss the urgency of watching for Jesus. In fact, Jesus says, watch. Be aware he's coming back. This story, the fact that you've been offered eternal life and, and so many of you have embraced that life and yet you're trying to find life, some of you, now in things that don't bring life. And your heart is distracted and cluttered and there's things that need to be straightened and there's attitudes that need to be brought low. And you do that through a process of obedience and submitting your life to him. And you'll blow it again and then turning to him. But you need a heart refocus. You know, it's interesting. We've been called to live in this interesting tension. And I think in these times um, we live and for so many, it's so easy to lose focus on the fact that he is coming and on the bigger story, and get completely wrapped up in life. And we live in this interesting tension that we're called to live with the knowledge that he could return soon, and he may return soon, right? If the Essenes' whole thing was right, possibly in the next 50 years, who knows? When they looked at the world that way, You know, Martin Luther said this interesting thing. He said, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. It's an interesting quote we have attributed to Martin Luther. Martin Luther King quoted it too. What does that mean? I think it means that we've been called to live in this interesting tension, that we're called to live wisely. We're called to think of generations and think of your kids and your grandkids and discipling them to follow Jesus, and we're called to invest in the future. But we're called to always maintain a sense of urgency that he could come back any moment. And guess, I just think we, we've lost that for so many in our culture. We've lost it. We've lost sight of that, of the bigger picture. Thessalonians tells us to to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to uh, mind your own business, to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anybody. And then he goes right on to talk about, we do that in the context of, he says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind. 
goes on in 15. According to the Lord's word, we, will, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And see, if you have lost the, the excitement about the fact that Jesus is coming back, it's probably because you've made comfort and here and now your false G, little G, idol God. And let me just tell you, there's believers right now in Myanmar, if you talk to our friends, the wards in Afghanistan, that are longing for the appearance of our Savior. Paul understood this. He said in, in 2 Timothy 4.8, he says, There is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And if you've, um, if you've been coming to our church for a while, you know I don't get too, um, I, I don't speak too much about end times kind of things. I talk about Jesus coming back, but I always say smarter people than us have been arguing about these things for thousands of years. And so I hold my opinions kind of loosely. I also know that just about every generation has, has thought that Jesus' return was imminent. And, you know, as I ponder that, because there's two things you can do with that. The one thing is you can say, well, I, I don't really know if Jesus is actually, like, yeah, every generation believed he'd return, so don't get all worked up about that stuff. That's one way. And I think for many that's actually an excuse to justify the fact that you've lost the excitement and the longing for his return. I'm telling you, when I look at my life, my life and my heart, sometimes I got to go, whoa, where's that excitement? Where's that longing? Like Paul talked about, those who long for his appearing. And um, there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on as we look at the events in the world, right? And as I close, I want to invite Winston up. Um, we're going to close in the song. But I just want to share a couple of those weird things. Because so, as I've been thinking about this, I'm like, this is so weird. I heard this somewhere, and I'm like, no, that can't be right. And then I looked it up, right? I'm like, yeah, actually, that, that, that's this. So as you know, uh, this is from the World Economic Forum. This guy's Klaus Schwab. He says, the pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world called The Great Reset. You've been hearing all about it, right, from time to time if you follow any of these things. Interesting. Um, so this was really weird. I saw this, too. Now, I'm going to turn around and trick you because there's going to be a bunch of you going, ha, see, I told you. You're going to be elbowing your wife and going, see, and she's been like, you're a crazy conspiracy theorist. So I'm going to get to you in a second, too. This was interesting. Did you know the word corona? Six letters. And then you add up just A, B, C, D. I was like, no. And I was trying to do it on my fingers, and I couldn't count. So I had to put it on a spreadsheet. I'm like, yeah, that's actually right. I saw that. I'm like, no, right? Corona, six. All these um, letters add up to 66. Hmm. Weird. Six, six, six. And now there's a few other things uh, that are interesting. And I heard these too, and I'm like, what's going on with that? Um, there was a House of Representatives bill introduced last year in the 117th Congress, actually this year. It was called HR 666. Interesting. You can go look all this stuff up. Because I did, I'm like, no way, right? I Googled it, yep. Um, Right before that, uh, last year, there was a HR 6666 that was the COVID testing, reaching, and contacting everyone trace act. Interesting. 
Um, and this one really got me. I saw this one last year. I haven't shared it because it's just so weird. Um, but I thought, I've been thinking about it. It's like, that's weird, right? Now, last year, you can look up this patent number. Microsoft applied and filed a patent for a cryptocurrency system using body activity data. Now, what does that mean? Well, it, it, what, it, what it means is whether through a chip technology or like a tattooed kind of technology, that they could actually monitor your body data, such as health decisions or, you know, kind of like a Fitbit, right? You, you did your thousand steps today. We're gonna, add, we're gonna give you a token. So, and, all, and when you look at it, it all seems harmless enough on the surface, and maybe, maybe it is. Um, but interestingly enough, the patent number that was issued was this, um, 2020-060606. I had to look it up. I'm like, no, right? There's an obscure prophecy in Ezekiel. And I had to look this up, too. I created a spreadsheet because I'm nerdy. And basically, what this obscure prophecy predicted, and I'll share it some other time, um, when you add up the calendar, it predicted to the week, the date that the nation of Israel um, was declared a nation in 1948. Um, I'm like, whoa, that's weird. <laughs> of course, many Bible scholars, not all, but many Bible scholars believe that the uh, the re the, the people returning to the land of Israel and the, the nation is a significant part of, of what might happen on the end. Now, before we get all weirded and tweaked out on this, because I'm like, whoa, that's weird, right? What does it mean? I don't know. Maybe nothing. Because uh, I'm just telling you, like, you can start nerding out on this stuff. So I looked up some other things. Because um, the Mark of the Beast, which I don't know if I've really ever even talked about on stage before. Um, it's also been associated with social security numbers in the past, credit card numbers. I bet you're carrying one of those, right? Barcodes. Um, actually, when you go back and you look at the specific passage in Revelation, did you know that the actual, you add up the characters of the name and it comes, it adds up exactly to, to Nero Caesar as well which makes a lot of sense in the time and the context that John was writing. When you transliterate the numbers, because Hebrew letters are actually numbers, that's what they use. People have uh, done these numbers and figured out, like Napoleon, the name adds up, right? Hitler, the name adds up, like um, the title of the, the Pope, the papacy adds up in history. Um, there's some more obscure ones, like actually cute purple dinosaur can add up to 666, which makes a lot of sense to me <laughs> if you've ever had toddlers. Saddam Hussein. But, uh, um, of course, then, you know, the one side of the country, a uh, few people looked at the middle name of a certain president and said, hmm, right? But before you go there, I got to say, like, uh, Ronald Wilson Reagan also was three sixes in each letter of his name, if you add it up. So if you're on the other side of that, be careful there, too. Uh, Trump. Trump's family, extended family, owned 666 Fifth Avenue. And, and here's the point of this. You're like, okay, this guy's crazy conspiracy theory. No. Like, what, like, I go, what's going on here, right? And the truth is, I don't know. I know every generation has felt that the return of the Lord is imminent. And what I am seeing in, in the global response to the pandemic as far as, um, you know, some of the things like digital IDs that are looking like, um, you know, are becoming the case in certain parts of the world, it sure seems like the technology is being put into place for what Revelation 13, you know, not being able to buy and sell unless you do certain things, right? I see that technology putting into, being put into place. And, and here's what I know. I don't know 
when it's going to happen, but I know we're closer today than we were yesterday. And I share that all with you because what I want to say is it's, it's, it's good to spend some time thinking of this. And I'm, I'm like, why, God, if this isn't it, what, why are you doing this? And it's maybe just because it's crazy coincidences, right? And maybe it's just to turn our hearts to remember that he's coming back soon. Or maybe things are actually ramping up towards his imminent return. I don't know, but here's what I know. We have been called to live with the urgency and the expectation that he is going to return. That we're part of a bigger story. And that urgency and expectation should, should lead us to live our life for him, for his glory, for his kingdom. That's why John ended his book of Revelation saying this, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Would you stand? And here's all I want you to do as we close today. And I just want to say I'm sorry I I kept you... Um, about 10 minutes longer than we normally do, 10, 15, and I apologize for that, but um, I wanted to share some of my nerdy, weird stuff that I don't know what to make of, right? Here's the thing. If you're putting your trust, and I think part of the point of all this and throughout history, the way that people have seen this, no matter how the end ends up playing out, if you're putting your trust in a world system, in comfort, in, in money, Jesus says you can't serve both God and money at the same time. If that's, if that's where your heart is, you're not going to know life and life in abundance. And so I want you, as we sing this, maybe you just need to reorient your heart towards, towards him and remind yourself Like, fan that thing that longs for the appearing of Jesus because I've gotten way too worried about comfort in the here and now. Let's sing this. I'll come back up and pray for us. Lord, I just pray that that you rekindle a love and a passion in our heart for you that longs to see you face to face, Lord. And for the heart that's distracted up there, that's worn down and concerns and cares right now, would you just revive their heart in that way? And would that be the thing that motivates us to go out and share the good news of you everywhere in this life, Lord? Lord, rekindle that in our hearts, we pray. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.